Good morning. Um, this morning, we're continuing our series. We don't talk about that. Um, and I think I waited to the hottest week of the year to talk about hell. Isn't that appropriate? <clears throat> I was thinking I could just come in and maybe just turn off all the air conditioning in here and just kind of make it an object lesson, and it would really make you not want to go there, right? So, so maybe all that will work in, in our favor. Taft was speaking Wednesday night, did a fabulous job with our summer series, and, and he referenced that when he spoke here a couple of weeks ago, he talked about heaven. And what a, a win of a, a topic that is, because everybody, if you preach on heaven, everybody likes you. Everybody likes that lesson, because we like to talk about heaven. And it's true. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to study hell. Nobody enjoys that. Sometimes people will observe and even complain that we don't talk about hell as much as we used to. You ever felt that way? That maybe it's kind of a, a topic that we just don't mention as often. Kind of think that's true. Uh, maybe you do as well. But I would say it's not necessarily a new phenomenon. Listen to this. Back in 1927, 1927, Bertrand Russell, a noted atheist, in his speech entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian, he criticized followers of Jesus for pushing aside this essential truth. He said, Hell is neither so certain nor as hot as it used to be. He said that in 1927. And you think about our contemporary culture. Hell is almost a joke. Hell is irrelevant. Hell is sort of made fun of or made light of, even in music. John Lennon urged us to imagine there's no heaven or hell. So the world could be one. Woody Allen said, hell is Manhattan at rush hour. So how can you take that kind of comment seriously? It's become so trivialized that it's kind of lost its force as a curse. We hear the phrase, go to hell, and we use that sometimes as a, a statement of hate. And sometimes, for those who use that kind of talk, they'll say that to their friend to say, shut up, or, or, or whatever. And they use it so callously. We'll damn something and have more of a reference to stubbing your toe than an eternal punishment. And it's just become laughable. Kind of like the bumper sticker that said, Hell was full, so they sent me back. And we kind of giggle at that a little bit, but it kind of illustrates how the world just sort of laughs at something that's really not laughable. So how can we take it seriously? But here's the issue, I think. Maybe we're not talking about hell as much as we used to, but I think that's a part of it. I think another part of it, maybe the bigger slice of pie, is that we're not talking about choices and consequences the way we used to. Think about that. We're not teaching and talking about choices and consequences the way we used to. We've lost that concept. So, is there really a hell? Does, that, does it really exist? Most of us would like to say no. Even though the Bible says it is, we can relate to C.S. Lewis when he said, just being real, there's no other doctrine that he would like most to remove from the Christian faith than the doctrine of hell. Christian theologian J.L. Pecker agrees that none of us take pleasure in the thought of people being eternally lost, that if we want to see people condemned to hell, there's something wrong with us. Yet the price we pay for rejecting what the Bible teaches is what we're saying is that Jesus was wrong. 
And if Jesus was wrong about that, then why would we think He's right about anything? How can we trust Him? When you read about hell in your Bible, we need to be careful to study it carefully. I've got a 30-minute sermon, then you're going to stop listening. And here's the truth. You can't really study this concept in depth in 30 minutes. So it's not just a matter of we don't hear about hell. I think each of us, as followers of Christ, need to study it for ourselves. But I want to give you a little bit of help as you do that. Because when you read through your Bibles, you'll read that word hell, but also some other words. Somebody counted, said in the King James Version, the word hell is used 54 times. But when you read the word hell, it's not always talking about what we're talking about this morning as far as eternal punishment. I put this on the screen. It's also on your outline. There are four Bible words that are translated as hell, depending on your translation. So again, you can read one version and might use the word hell. You might read another version and might use one of these words or yet something else. Sheol is one of them. You've heard that term? Sheol, 65 times. Usually it means grave. It means pit. But it's not usually talking about eternal punishment. Then the word Hades. Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. Like Hades is sort of like a rated PG version of hell. Like you don't say H-E double toothpicks, so you say Hades and you feel like that's a kinder word. But it's not really the same thing at all. In fact, only three of the ten times in the New Testament is the word Hades referring to eternal punishment. And then the word Gehenna. She's twelve times in the New Testament. And that's not referring to eternal punishment. We'll talk about that word more in a moment. Tartarus is another one, 2 Peter chapter 2. That one is talking about punishment. But the point I'm making and share this, when you read in your Bibles about hell, the writer may be talking about the grave or death or a place of punishment. So you have to read the context and sometimes even go back to the original language to understand. So let's begin by just acknowledging an idea that so many folks might have about hell. Is hell a belief to be used like the boogeyman? Now I intended to put that a blank and just see how you would spell boogeyman and see if you'd spell it the way I did. But did you ever grow up hearing about the boogeyman? You know, that was the one that lived in the closet. That's the one that lived under the bed. Uh, if you've seen the Spectrum commercials, they brought it to life. Those are the boogeymen, right? And it's the idea there, if, if you don't behave, the boogeyman will get you. It was sort of this, this entity, this power, this force to, to call someone who was younger to be afraid. And to make the right choice and to do the right thing. And some use the concept of hell... In the same way, to evoke fear so that you make the right choice to keep people in line. I'd never heard of this. Lee Strobel mentioned Case for Faith, a 19th century priest nicknamed the Children's Apostle. You ever heard of that? The Children's Apostle? He used hell to scare kids into belief. In one of his messages, he said this. Now, parents, you're going to make sure that when you get home, you help your children make sure they've heard the right things because I'm sharing you what it's not. But this is what was said for years. He said this in one of his messages. A little child is in this red-hot oven. Hear how it screams to come out. See how it turns and twists itself about in the fire. It beats his head against the roof of the oven. It stomps his little feet on the floor. You can see on the face of this little child... What you see on the faces in hell, despair, desperate, and horrible. Isn't that an awful way 
of looking at that and, and to use that to evoke fear in little children. I'd not heard of him or that statement. I had heard of Jonathan Edwards. Remember Jonathan Edwards? And what's now a classic sinners in the hands of an angry God. Basically the same thing where God is portrayed that way. Hell was described in his sermon so graphic that people ran out of the church covering their ears. They just couldn't take it in. It was that awful. And I think we have to be honest and admit that hell has been used by some people throughout the history of the church to manipulate Some well-meaning folks throughout the history have used these pains of eternal judgment to horrify people into faith. And the problem with that is that any relationship that has as its foundation fear is not going to go well. Now last week we talked about fear, and again we don't like to talk about that one either. But if your relationship is all about fear... It's not healthy. It's not good. In fact, those are the kind of relationships we try to get out of. Yet the concept of hell has been exploited. And some for selfish reasons. But that doesn't mean it's a myth. That doesn't mean it does not exist. We could easily dismiss it if this was just a tradition that we in a church have made up. But we didn't make this up. And we may even disregard it if there were just a few references in the Bible to it and say, well, you know, it's not really a a major doctrine of Scripture. But it is a major doctrine of Scripture. And it is repeatedly referred to. So what does the Bible teach about hell? Well, here's something I want you to know. Jesus is the one person most, especially in the New Testament, to tell us about hell. Almost 15% of his teachings deal with the concept, the word hell, or at least eternal judgment. Two-thirds of his parables relate to the subject of resurrection and judgment. Of the 13 times the word hell is used in the New Testament, 11 of those come from heaven. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. And he taught us some things. So we have to conclude then, this is not just a threat to keep people in line. Better not do that or you'll go there. It's more to it than that. Look at this verse, Matthew 13, verse 41. Look what Jesus said. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out His kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A couple of points if you fill in the blanks. i put these on the screen as well. Number one, hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's a good place to begin. Something we need to know. John 8, 44. He was a murderer, talking about the devil, from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him when he lies. He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Then Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Number two, God wants no one to go to hell. I hope you know that. Hope that's one of the first things that comes out of your mouth if you're ever talking with somebody. God wants no one to go to hell. So, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You contrast that with number three, the devil wants everybody to go there. He wants everybody to go to hell. John 10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
And then number four, hell is a place filled with unimaginable fear. That is a part of it. And repeatedly, Jesus would speak about outer darkness, where there'd be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and the very possession of a demon manifested itself with the gnashing of teeth. Like in Mark 9, verse 18, it says, Whenever this evil spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground and makes him foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, and become rigid. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So there should be fear related to that. And then number five, we learn from Jesus that hell is like a burning garbage heap or garbage dump. In Matthew 9, verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm never does die and the fire is not quenched. I mentioned the word Gehenna earlier. It's not, it's a name for an actual place. Uh, Sometimes it's just, I don't know, the word stuck with me. I'll say like on a day like yesterday, as hot as Gehenna. Uh, And that's not a wordy dirt. Uh, That's a kind of a reality. It says a hot day. And Gehenna was a hot place. Let me tell you a little bit about that. The Hinnom Valley, if you're reading about it in your Bibles, is also called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Or if you remember from the original language, Ben means son. So sometimes it reads the Valley of Ben Hinnom. But most often it's shortened to the Valley of Hinnom. <clears throat> in Hebrew, it's pronounced Gehinnom. You transliterate that into Greek and it's Gehenna. And so that's what you read in the, in, the, in the Greek is Gehenna. So the Hinnom Valley is Gehenna in the New Testament. And what you read, and it's often associated with fire and judgment and lake of fire, eternal fire, and hell. Here's something else to kind of keep in mind. The Hinnom Valley is the lowest point there in the city of Jerusalem. And the Temple Mount on Mount Moriah is the highest point of the city. It represents the presence of the Lord. So you've got the Temple Mount at the top and, and the Valley of Hinnom at the bottom. And so there's some topography there going on in the up and the down and what's on top and what's on bottom. In fact, two verses in Isaiah talks about let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Like there's the presence of God. And then also in Amos chapter 9, it says they dig down to the depths of Sheol. And it's talking about Gehenna. And, and that's the word there. And, and talking about that's opposite of the presence of God. <clears throat> to understand how bad this was. Last Sunday night, we talked about the King Hezekiah and how awesome he was. How he did away with all the high places, the idolatry, all the wickedness. And tried to restore worship of the true God. When you read in your Bibles, is that the kings on either side of him, the one just before him and the one after him, his own father and then his predecessor, Ahaz and Manasseh, both offered their own sons in Gehenna, threw their own children into this fiery pit in worship to the god Molech. I want to share that with you so you understand the depravity that would go on when you would hear the word Gehenna. That's what happened. This was the garbage dump. This was a fire that was always going on. And at times when evil was at its worst, you had men in leadership like the kings of Judah offering their own children in Gehenna. 
So much so that it became symbolic that all that was evil. And this was still true in Jesus' day. The valley of Hinnom or Gehenna was this burning garbage dump. This place where all the refuge went is where the animal carcasses were thrown. You know, you've had that happen. You've got a dead something like, what do I do with it? Well, if you lived in Jerusalem, that's what you would do with it. But not just animal carcasses, even the bodies of criminals. The idea is they're not worthy of an honorable grave. And so they too would be thrown into this pit, into this smoldering fire in Gehenna, where this garbage was consumed. When you read in the Bible about worms, and talks about them where they never die, the idea there, literally, what we would think of is maggots. This endless supply. You're never going to get rid of them. Because it's ongoing. Where the worm never dies. Where the fire is not quenched. So it's this garbage dump kind of mindset. And then number six, and I alluded to this a moment ago with talking about Gehenna, it's a place of separation. It's a place of separation. Sometimes, again, we make light of hell and saying, well, I might end up in hell, but I'll be there with all my buddies and we'll just have a party. It's not going to be a party. And you can't think of it that way. If you somehow end up in hell, it's not going to be that. Hell is separation, not just from others, but primarily it's from God. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. So you get this picture. Heaven is the presence of God and hell is the absence of God. And think about this. None of us have lived ever in any kind of setting where we've been fully removed from the presence of God. Nobody has. Even the most spiritually darkened people have the opportunity to taste some of the benefits of God's presence. Max Lucado put it like this. He's so good with words. None of us have been in a blessing-less world. Even the vilest precincts of humanity know the grace of God. People who want nothing of God still enjoy His benefits. Adolf Hitler witnessed the wonder of the Alps. Saddam Hussein enjoyed the blessing sunrise of the desert. The dictator, the child molester, the serial rapist, the drug peddler, they all enjoy the common grace of God's goodness. They hear children laugh. They smell dinner cooking. They tap their toes to the rhythm of a good song. They deny God, yet they enjoy His benevolence. But these privileges are confiscated at the gateway of hell. Which brings me to number seven. And we learn this from Jesus, that hell is a place of eternal punishment. Multiple times, but I call your attention to Matthew 25, verse 41. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then verse 46, And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Sometimes people will say, well, hell is not eternal. It's not going to last forever. In fact, that thought has gotten a lot of traction uh, of late. And we'd like to think that, wouldn't we? Like that might bring us a little bit of peace. At least it's over quickly. You go there, but then you just cease to exist. But the same word in this verse that talks about eternal punishment and eternal life, same eternal. Same word. So you have to think about that. 
This may be the most terrifying aspect of hell of all. The length, the duration. Forever and ever. Revelation 20 verse 10. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, In hell there is no hope. The damned have not even the hope of, the di- of dying. The hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell there is written forever. In the fires there blaze out the words forever. Above their heads they read forever. Their eyes are galled and their hearts are pained with the thought that it's forever. <clears throat> Chris Seedman preaches for the Branch Church of Christ in, in Texas. And he said this, Every now and then I read or hear somebody consoling themselves that the ways in which hell is spoken of in Scripture, that they're just mere symbols. People will say it's just a symbol. It's not the real description. And he says, I don't know whether to be consoled or encouraged by that. And then he quotes theologian R.C. Sproul, who says, Whenever we talk about symbols or images, we use a symbol to represent a reality. The reality always exceeds in substance what the symbol contains, meaning that the reality is much, much worse than the symbol that is given or used. Now, you may be hearing all of this thinking, that doesn't sound very much like a loving God at all. I mean, this is hard to take in. But we have to remember that we are created in His image. And that we are to bring Him honor and praise and devotion for all that He's done. And to reject who He is is to reject who you are. Because you were created in His image. And there are consequences for our sin. Again, we don't talk about that as much as we used to. There are consequences if we reject God. That's key. Look on the screen, verse, Romans 3, verse 10. There is no, no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 6, verse, tw- three, uh, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And then chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we understand wages means what we deserve. You work, you get your wages. You work for the you deserve. The wages of sin is death. But sometimes I know, we think, well, I'm not a terrible sinner. I don't get it all right, but I'm not a serial rapist. I'm not a murderer. Surely I don't need to go there. I don't deserve to go there with the worst. And we think of that way sometimes. But if a window is broken, it doesn't matter if one rock went through it or a hundred. You still need a new window. And heaven is a place of perfection. You've got to pay for your sins. Somebody's got to pay for your sins. How do you cover your sins? Our only hope is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why He came to obey His gospel. And when you receive His perfection, His righteousness, it's in one of the lyrics of the songs we sang about, we receive His righteousness. That's the gospel. God has gone to incredible lengths so that people will go to heaven and will not go to hell. Again, 2 Peter 3, 9, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I know you're sitting here reading all this because I did all, all... If this is hard for you in 20 minutes, this has been my week. And it's been hot outside. 
I changed the way, the delivery, the message, the points three or four times. The secretaries were so patient. About two o'clock Friday, I said, okay, this is it. And I can't change it anymore. I hated it. You hate This is awkward. This is unpleasant. This is awful. Aren't you glad you came to church today? To hear this? Some of you are thinking, why today? I brought a friend. I brought somebody with me. I have to. As a minister of the gospel, I cannot just say what people want to hear or what is easy to hear. I have to preach the whole counsel of God even when it's not popular. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. The friend you brought today needs to be reminded. The person that you want to invite needs to be reminded. We need to know this. Understand, I don't want anybody to go to hell. I would love for the vilest, the worst sinner to be able to be with God forever. That's what I would wish. I hope you would wish that too. But God watched His own Son whipped and beaten with an inch of His life. And that was just the beginning. You know the story. He watched His Son have His hands and His feet nailed to the cross. He watched His Son for six hours on that cross suffocate to death with every drop of blood paying for every evil deed that I will ever do. That you will ever do. And He did that so that every one of us would never have to catch a whiff of that fire. He killed His own Son. He allowed that sacrifice so that you and I wouldn't have to go there. Someone would say, you know, a place that horrific, it must take an awful lot of sin. What kind of crime deserves that kind of punishment that would warrant that, that you would go there? You know what it is? Don't think of this long list of these awful sins. It's one. You reject Christ. That's what sin is. All of it. It's when you stop following Jesus. That's why our, our mission is to be completely committed followers. Because when you stop doing that, You're putting yourself on the throne. And you're rejecting the one who created you. It is your choice. But I've got good news. I know I've shared a lot of bad news. Thanks to Jesus, you don't have to go there. Christians don't have to fear hell. That's not the way that we are to live. There's so many verses, a whole other sermon about the assurance of the believer. When you give your life to Him, that we trust and follow Him, hell is defeated. It's real. It's there. But the good news and the world needs to follow, needs to hear this. Look at Jude, verses 22 and 23. This is to you and me. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. That's your job. That's my job. Because we know. We know. Snatch others from the fire. And that's what we should be doing all of our life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon 
preached back in the 1800s. One of his sermons, he said this, and I love this. If sinners be condemned, at least let them leap into hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. That is very convicting. You have a say in where you spend eternity. We should reissue that challenge. Remember, a year and a half ago, we talked about names, your five names. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Who is it that you know that has not yet named the name of Jesus? Because let me close with this. Because here's the question. Would a loving God send someone to hell? The answer is no. We send ourselves. It's our own choice by not following Christ. Because at different points in your life, you have had the opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to confess your faith in Him, to repent of your sins, have them washed away in baptism, and you said no. Or at least you didn't say yes, which in essence is a no. You're not following. It is choice, not chance, that determines your destiny. Think of it this way. Jesus is on the cross and His message to you is you're going to hell over my dead body. You can go, but it's not because He didn't do everything He could to save you. It's your choice. Greg Hogue was a respected and caring doctor. He grew up in church. Early in his life, he made a commitment to Christ. He was baptized. And even as a teenager, spoke, just gave sermons a couple of times. But after med school, Gary began to doubt who God was. Was God even real? He was married. They had a daughter. His wife, full of faith. His daughter as well. They went to church consistently. And Gary sometimes would go with them. But he just didn't believe. He no longer believed. Gary died. I want to share a letter from his grown daughter. She said, for as long as I can remember, it's been my prayer that my daddy would come to know Jesus. He was a good man. I never doubted his love, but he was not a lover of Christ. And so his salvation became the prayer of our lives. Several years ago, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And during his disease, he became more of a seeker. He read things about God. He watched religious programming. He went to church more often. It seemed he was becoming more open to the idea of God and faith, but he just kind of stayed stuck there. It's almost like Dad was content to just be a seeker. But about four months ago, my mom, who's a prayer warrior and a person of great faith, had another deep conversation with him after they returned from a doctor's visit. Mom said she felt a desperation about it and, and, that, and she was nudged by the Spirit to have this conversation. And she said to him, I know you've been going to church and asking questions, but I'm really afraid that you'll wait too long to make a decision. And that day she went on to clearly share the gospel. She told him that the choice that he was facing was whether he was going to try to pay for his own sins and thus end up in hell or he's going to let Jesus pay for them and spend the rest of eternity in heaven. She explained that hell was a place of isolation from everything he knows and cares about. And it is a forever separation from God. 
She told him that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection created a way for him to avoid that isolation and to have a path to belong with God forever. And through tears, she told him the good news of the gospel, that his sins had already been paid for, and they just needed to make a decision to accept it. And mom told him very simply that his choice was between heaven and hell. And she said he seemed to be listening intently. And after this emotional conversation, she kissed him and got up and left the room to do some other things in the house. She said, with this disease, I didn't know if a few hours later he would even remember the conversation. But several hours later, she said he came to her, put his arms around her, and said, Honey, I choose heaven. I choose heaven. The prayer of our lives had been answered by God with a resounding yes. In the next few weeks, we got several confirmations that he didn't just choose heaven, but he genuinely chose Jesus. A change was evident. Dad's choice was totally changed the feelings the last weeks of his life. There are no words to describe how very different that experience was compared to what it would have been like. When he passed, we were sad, but we were not desperate, and we were not hopeless. I know we will see him again because he chose heaven. Choice, not chance, determines where you spend eternity. Two verses, you know them. John three sixteen. you have it memorized. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know this is Jesus' words. We love this verse. But the next verse I may love even more if... For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. We don't like to talk about hell. But we need to know about it. Our invitation is for you to make a choice. Maybe you can just sing with your heart and reaffirm your choice to follow Jesus because you've already made that decision. Or maybe you made it years ago but you've been following something else and it's time to recommit. If we can pray for you and encourage you, we want to do that. Or if today is the day that you accept Jesus, let Him make you a new creation in baptism to give you His Spirit so that you can be with Him for eternity. Won't you come as we stand and sing?